Hi, Alabaster Jar listeners. This is Lynn Kohick with an exciting announcement. The Center for Women in Leadership is hosting an event. Let me ask you, are you looking for hope? Well, I want you to join us for this one day gathering of empowerment and encouragement. We are featuring the theme of Dr. Scott McKnight's next resource on Tov, you know, Tov, that Hebrew word for goodness. We're going to explore how we can change church culture from just tolerating toxicity to cultivating goodness. And I'm excited to announce our two keynote speakers. Dr. Lisa Bowens will remind us that we are a sisterhood and a family of change agents that are moving into the future with mutual flourishing. And Vivian Mabuni, she helps us explore a willingness to risk, to say yes to whatever God asks us, helping us to forge a practical path to deeper joy. Let's move from church hurt to Christ's hope. Join us for Tove 2022. You can find more information at our website, Center for Women in Leadership here at Northern Seminary. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week's episode is hosted by Dr. Lynn Kohick, Serene Musselman, and Kelly DiPolito, Director of the Center for Women in Leadership. We are joined this week by educator and writer Karen Guest. Karen graduated from Wake Forest University with a degree in history and spent the next 12 years teaching middle and high school in Japan, inner city Richmond, and suburban Atlanta. For the next 12 years, she worked with her father, Ron Blue, editing, compiling, and creating content for Kingdom Advisors and the Ron Blue Institute. Together, they authored the book, Never Enough, Three Keys to Financial Contentment. Most recently, Karen has completed a master's in theology at Fuller Seminary and helps to lead at the Khalid Project, an Atlanta-based ministry that seeks to facilitate spiritual formation for women through seasons of disruption. Karen and her husband have three young adult children and reside in Clarkston, Georgia, a city that is home to several thousand refugees from all over the world. They enjoy neighboring in their community and sharing its beauty with others. She attends and serves on the vestry at Emanuel Anglican Church, as well as serving on the board of Refuge Coffee in Clarkston. She writes weekly at the Khalid Project's blog. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Karen. I'm excited that Kelly DiPolito, who is the director of the Center for Women in Leadership here at Northern Seminary, is joining us. It's a special time. This is her first podcast, and she's doing it with one of her good friends. So that is so fun. Serene and I are thrilled that, Karen, that you're joining us. And Kelly, introduce your friend a little bit to us and how you know each other. Karen and I got to know each other as young adults 27 years ago when we were starting the journey of adulthood. Really, Karen, you have always struck me as one of the most kind and authentic people I've ever known. And so having that friendship over the years has really been touching. So to, 
I would have never known 27 years ago that we would end up on this podcast together today. We've both transformed and grown up a lot in those years. So to listen to some of your story is really exciting for me. We met in the suburbs of Atlanta, but you currently live in what is known as the most diverse square mile in the country in Clarkston, Georgia. But you didn't grow up there, and I didn't meet you there. So can you trace your journey from childhood to your current ministry and, and highlight to us some key theological truths that have shaped you? Like, kind of give me some two or three childhood events or realities that shaped your view of God and your church's work in the world. Kind of catch me up on the past 27 years of transformation for you. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you all for the invitation to be here. It is really a pleasure and so much fun to see you, Kelly. We live in different states now, so it's fun to get to see you. And that's a big ask. So 27 years of growth, but God is faithful. I would say that is the number one thing. Um, if I could say one thing and drop and leave, that would be it. But I think I grew up in Atlanta and I grew up in kind of the just epicenter of white Southern evangelicalism. My parents had dramatic conversion experiences right before I was born and they moved across the country to be on staff with what is now Crew. And we just were all in head first, um, which was a good thing. Also, I think I picked up a lot of kind of the what was in the water in the 70s and 80s in evangelicalism in terms of fear, white saviorism, patriarchy, a lot of those things that I think we as women in these spaces get to untangle in our own lives and stories and in the story of our world and how we do missions. But I would say I grew up kind of thinking about the other, however you want to define the other. And in, in that world and in that space, the other was very broadly defined. <laughs> and the who we were, in quotes, was fairly narrowly defined. And I, as I grew up, I came to think of it as my Sesame Street fear, which is kind of odd that you would have a fear of watching Sesame Street. But growing up, I do remember <clears throat> faithfully watching Sesame Street and having this sense of like, moral responsibility to all of the other people that I saw, <laughs> faces, you know, ethnicities, all of that, that somehow they were all my job in my faith. I had to find all the people and bring them to Jesus. And it was a really a fairly fear-based um, kind of conversion direction. So I think it, it is a testimony to God's faithfulness that both <laughs> I have gotten to go to seminary and enjoy that gift, and also that we ended up very happily living ensconced in the most diverse square mile in America for the last 10 years alongside refugees from all over the world. Our community receives people from all over, and at any point, there's about 5,000 of our 10,000 residents are refugees. So it's been a really sweet ride, but definitely have gotten to grapple with church and faith in deep ways along the way. I'm struck by some of the language that, that you use. I'm also struck with the whole Sesame Street thing. I think of Cookie Monster. That's really where I focused, which tells you maybe where my headspace was for a long time. But what when you talk about fear and you talk about white saviorism, we're going to get to you getting an MA in theology, but this is before you had your MA. Like, What does that mean? Or what did, from a theological standpoint, you express very well how you were feeling, but what also were you thinking and how did those phrases like white saviorism really capture 
your world at that time? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I would say I would start with a fear. And in my upbringing, what I received, now I'm a sensitive soul. <laughs> if you're an Enneagram person, I'm a four. I've got kind of a lot of, you know, receptors out in the world. But I came to think of God as angry and as, and my job to save people from, from that. Now, that I know is not the gospel, but it was what I internalized growing up in a culture where there was kind of a stark representation of hell and God's judgment. And then recognizing, I also kind of grew up in a home in a great way. I came across so many dear missionary families, but because my parents were on staff, we had people through our home all the time. And really feeling like it was our job to save the world, kind of single-handedly, like there was a, a little outpost of humanity that bore it on their shoulders to be the ones to make sure everybody was saved. So I think that those things were more, I couldn't have probably articulated them and, and I wouldn't have that starkly, but they were probably the roots that were bearing fruit in my life as we came as I grew up in the church and then wrestled really with trying to figure out what I was experiencing of God as I grew in my faith was nothing like that. God was so faithful in my journey. But I think when we began our transition and thinking of moving to Clarkston from the suburbs, you know, it was only a 25-minute move, but it's sort of culturally very dramatic. I think that was the space where I had to come face to face with a lot of those things that had been internalized in me because I was suddenly moving into the nations <laughs> and, um, you know, wondered if as I arrived here, sensing God's call and feeling very cared for by the Lord along the way, if I would somehow fail God by, you know, not doing all the things that I think were deep inside. So that was a lot of what kind of came up in me and became a hard thing to grapple with, like, who am I in the kingdom? How do I fit? And what does it mean to be faithful to God in the yeah. world? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And talking about failing God, that's a huge, a huge burden. Wow. And you have, you took a little bit of time, maybe six months or so to be in Japan. That was, sounds like a really transformative time. I'm interested in how you moved from a self, I don't mean self-centered in a bad way. I mean, like your understanding that it was your job to save others. And by that, I guess you mean they make a profession of faith that Jesus is Lord. How you moved from that kind of fear-based to then this, where you are now, where you're, I think your understanding of the gospel or what it means to be saved might be nuanced differently. But can you tie Japan into, into that movement? That's an interesting question. So I went to Japan right after college and taught English for six months. And it was my first exactly being the other. I was, we lived in a rural part of the country. Very few people spoke English. I didn't speak Japanese. I just taught English at the local YMCA. So it was an opportunity to experience friendship as a gift in a new way from people who were generously offering it and to get that sense as well of being a receiver as well as a giver, to recognize the dignity and mutuality. I think 
as well as to put in my heart a passion for in terms of like pain, like recognizing that it is, it's really hard to be in a, an entirely foreign country. I had been to Europe, you know, along the way, but to it, Japan felt much more, I felt much more alone there, largely because of the language, but also just the culture. So to recognize those two things, I think were planted in me way, way back in that season and definitely have grown through our time in this international community, sort of the mutuality and dignity in that and the gift of hospitality, knowing how hard it is to be a stranger somewhere. I resonate, Karen, very much with your time in in Japan feeling lonely. I spent a couple of years in Kenya, in rural Kenya, and made wonderful friends. I know what you mean about the the gift of someone giving their friendship to you. That's just a very special, it, it feels very special in, uh, and yet that doesn't take away a, a loneliness for sure. So all of these experiences are impacting you and Tell me what would be kind of the next step. Do you move to Clarkson first or do you start your MA first or is it happening both at the same time? Kind of what's going on at this point? Sure. Yeah. So about, I guess it was about 12 years ago, 11 years ago, our family began to volunteer in Clarkston really just through a church like serve day kind of thing. And um, my, it was interesting. My husband, who is not usually the one to say, let's add more to our schedule, <laughs> said, I really, we came for a day. We learned a little bit about refugees and resettlement. We had lunch with a family, and he was very much taken with it immediately and said, I would like to adopt a family, um, a newly arrived refugee family, which just really means becoming a kind of intentional friend through one of the agencies here. And I said, I don't think I have time for that. We had three middle school and high school kids. I was working, he was working, and I figured it would land on me at the end of the day. And so I put up some pretty strong no's for a while, but he persisted. And the Lord was so gracious along the way and really kindly continued to open doors and also move us in this direction. So we began to volunteer, and it really did capture our heart, just the whole issue of refugee resettlement, the power of simple friendship. I mean, that was literally all we did, but it was it was transformative for us. It was also very, it was just a, a security measure that they wouldn't, the family we adopted would not have had otherwise. They knew who to call if they had a question. And, you know, it, it was a beautiful experience and we were in, enraptured <laughs> with it. So the church we were at, at the time asked if we would be their liaison between the resettlement agency in the church. And we said, sure. And that was really how God got us into this space of really sharing the experience with other people. And as we did that, and as we became more and more connected in the community, we really did sense a call to move. And interestingly, it was, we, a lot of things, I, you know, it's a long story, but the scripture God gave us was out of Second Corinthians about being ambassadors for Christ. And so the idea of having an embassy in a place where you're an ambassador really struck us that, you know, probably that meant we needed to move here if that was what the Lord was inviting us to do. And then just to hold the space open for people from both communities to come and go and learn about each other and be friends. So we we were very 
energized and excited. And our kids even got on board. And then everything ground to a halt. You know how the Lord can do. I was just reading in Ecclesiastes today about everything. There's a season and a time. And it, a year and a half of, we could not move here. It was like everything stood in the way. And then, so Doug and I went back to God over a weekend and we were like, did, like, are we wrong? Did we not hear that? And really, we went back to the same passage and continued, you know, just kind of digging in. And it was like the Lord brought up the idea of neighbor from that same scripture. And it felt like what we were missing was the sense of going as a as a neighbor instead of going as someone who had all this to give. And that was powerful. And from that point, we, you know, we were here within six months. The Lord really did open the doors when we shifted our paradigm. But that neighboring paradigm kind of is rooted in a little bit for me an experience that I had in Japan. But also there was, um, we had purchased a tiny house that had like 900 square feet to be like the embassy that we thought people could, you know, come stay in or mission team, you know, whatever. And so it became clear that we were actually supposed to live in that house with our kids. And our big thing we thought we had as a gift was hospitality and with no dining room table and really no kitchen table. There was no space for hospitality out of the house that we decided to live in. And so it was like God asked us to lay down even the tools that we had to feel like we were in that position of, you know, we have what you need kind of thing. And to just be mutually participating in the community. Now, God was gracious and we were able to renovate after about five years. And now we have a dining room and have people over to dinner. But (laughs) we did spend, you know, there was a lot of intentionality and it was an interesting process to try to learn how to be a neighbor without having all this stuff. No, that is so powerful. You mentioned your training in refugee resettlement. As I hear that, I realize that for me, it's something that I hear about on the news and therefore it's an abstract type of thought. But for you, it's been very personal and involved and you see the stories and have lived it, lived it with people. So can you kind of speak to me a little bit? Like, what do you, what do I need to know about refugee resettlement that you learned through that process? Oh, goodness. That is a good question, Kelly. And I am, I'm not an expert, but I will say refugee resettlement is a global issue and I dare say a global crisis. There are more refugees than you can imagine. I I don't know the number off the top of my head, so I'm not going to quote one, but so many. And the UN does hard work trying to connect refugees with next steps. But in order to be classified as a refugee, the UN conducts interviews and you have to have fled across an international border for reasons of persecution or I believe war, like a, a person who's fleeing because of famine does not, that's not a refugee. You have to have fled because you're in danger um, of, because of something in a system around you that, that could harm you. So anyhow, to be classified as a refugee means you've been through extensive trauma. And then typically people stay in refugee camps. You know, I, I think they, they say the average stay is between seven and 14 years. It takes years for the process of Either figuring out, can you go back? Because that's obviously everyone's first choice would be to go home. 
Or can you be resettled in a neighboring country or in another part of the country you fled from? Or do you have to be resettled to a country that is, you know, like the United States that's quite far? Um, and that's an extremely small population of refugees who get that opportunity. And when they do, he, then they have to go through a process of being received by the United States government. So they go back through security checks and all of that again. And then they get assigned to a city. And at that point, when they arrive, their care is taken over by an NGO. And there are probably between six and nine refugee resettlement agencies that are active that work. Basically, they care for refugees for anywhere between three and six months, depending on the situation that the person comes with and the funding that they have. And then after that, they're expected to be fully self-sufficient. So that's a high bar if you consider that you're coming with trauma, often not language, you know, transportation, education, all of that, to be able to be self-sufficient in six months without services. So our community happens to be, and I, this was a couple years ago statistic, but tied with the zip code in Texas for the highest rate of self-sufficiency after that amount of time. So when you have folks in a community that where it's sort of an organic space and there are a lot of different endeavors that have cropped up to support people along the way, obviously that's better than just being dropped off, you know, somewhere where there's not a, a wide network. So that's part of why we love getting to be here is because it is, it's no one person and it's no one organization. It is a wide very diverse network of both ministries and just nonprofits that serve refugees here. You have a, yeah, oh, sorry. Go ahead. You have a uh, project that you're a part of, a group that you're a part of. And I'm going to say it wrong. It comes from Kaleidoscope, but it's Khalid. Is it the Khalid Project? It's the Collide Project. Collide. Oh, yeah. sorry. So, I knew. so it's a little play on words. <laughs> it's okay. It's a little play yeah. on words. And it does. It's meant to make you think of collisions. And so a few friends and I started it oh, a few years ago, and we're small and local. But at, so as I, as we moved here and I processed the disruption in my own heart, as I came to see other people differently, myself differently, my city differently, that was an invitation to growth. And I really found my seminary journey to be a space for processing a lot of that disruption and a lot of that growth. But most women don't have the opportunity to engage that type of experience to process disruption. And so the Collide Project is a space for women in Atlanta to intentionally walk together through life's shifts, whether it's in how we see ourselves or others or our city, and to seek growth through that shift. And we do circles, which are just our groups that meet, and we have focus on contemplative. So we believe it's that spiritual formation includes being grounded in God's love, which is a contemplative space, broadening understanding, so learning to listen, especially about things that maybe the church isn't talking about very openly, things like race, things like patriarchy, things like politics, <laughs> you know, immigration, stuff that we long to have a space to process and oftentimes don't. And then also through what we call embodiment. So how are we living in the world differently and how are we taking in our world intentionally in a tangible way and letting that be a part of our formation through these seasons of changing perspectives that we all go through. I mean, I'm middle-aged, so we happen to do a lot of that in this season, but I think women, yeah. it's just life to grow. So 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we are enjoined to do that, right? We are enjoined to do that. And God promises that each and every day we're being conformed to the image of his son, which is a, a wonderful promise. We'll definitely put this information for our listeners in the show notes so that others um, who may be interested to start something like this in their own city can take a look at this and connect with you. You also mentioned a couple of different times now, we've talked about the fact that you also went on and just finished, congratulations, your MA in theology. And so I'd love to hear what, what led you to uh, start this, this degree. And then from there, we'll talk about the hurdles, right? Because there's always hurdles and aha moments. But what started you, do you think, on this path? Yeah, well, I think we've already talked about a lot of it. There were definitely was a sense of disorientation that had come through both our move here and then really was intensified because the refugee situation became political. When we moved here, it was not, but it became that way. Um in terms of being a hot button. I mean, obviously, there's always politics involved. But anyhow, it there was that the first five years we were here, just a lot of things, like I said, that I was wrestling with in my own gut as far as like what I believed about God and the church and <laughs> my call, as well as how to interact with the world when it seemed to be not aligning in terms of God's heart to love the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And, you know, so anyhow, I've always been a learner. I've, I love to learn. I hadn't had an imagination for myself learning past college. Again, I, growing up, I really felt like my life's call and work would be to be a wife and a mother just from the kind of church spaces I grew up in. And so I began to really want to have a place to process all of these things. And I do process in my head and, you know, it makes its way other places, but that's kind of my, that's my jam. I'm a head person. So anyhow, and I taught school, I just love to learn. So I decided to pursue getting a master's in theology because the church we were attending at the time actually had a kind of preview class you could take at Dallas Seminary, which was really, it was a great class. It definitely affirmed for me that this was what I wanted and where I wanted or what I wanted and where I wanted to spend my time. I, in looking at the different programs that were available, I really wanted to look for a place where diverse voice, voices were accessible and elevated and kind of a, so I ended up at Fuller just because, you know, the program offered a lot of that and also had a lot of electives and they had great classes in their elective space. So I have loved it. And I think one of, I took a class on the Psalms in Walter Brueggemann's model of the Psalms kind of probably helps to define the journey that I had and experienced through seminary. He talks about that there are Psalms of orientation and disorientation and reorientation. And the Psalms of orientation are kind of rooted in this if-then binary way of thinking that we tend to have with God. Like, you know, if I do this, then this will happen. And there is a sense of God's order and in Scripture and in the world that is true and right. But when we only connect with that, we tend to find that it can be a brittle place because the, our human lives are complicated and they're broken. So we end up in these disoriented, you know, <clears throat> psalms in our hearts of questioning and dark places and confusing relationships and shifting things. And there are a whole section of psalms that just speak, allow us to speak those things. And then the psalms of reorientation bring us to this 
sense of our trust in God in relationship and our trust in God's faithfulness to be with us during all of this. And so I think that for me, seminary was kind of a a beautiful opportunity. I was probably in a disoriented phase, but to reckon with what I had thought to be always very linear in my orientation life, to reckon with the questions and the pain in my disorientation and to come into this deeper place of trust and relationship with God that feels spacious and also true to who I am and to who God has revealed himself to be in the world and in scripture. So yeah. 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 So in a sense was that you mentioned maybe one of your aha moments, and that was as you now look mm-hmm. at the Psalms, mm-hmm. were there any other times either in a class or just a, in your study where you thought, oh, that, I mean, you've already said one to me that is so, has just impacted me so much on changing the idea that, oh, I'm going to have an embassy here to, oh, I'm going to move in and be a neighbor. That, that is just so, that that's brilliant. And so much the gospel. Were there, can you think of, if you have another, maybe it's those aha moments as you're going through before we get to the tough hurdles that that you had? Yeah. I think the other one that stands out that's really shaped me as a woman was in a one of the systematic theology classes I took, studying the image of God and this, I will probably butcher the word. I only had one Hebrew class, but Salem, the idea, T-S-E-L-E-M, of our, that's the word for image in image of God in Genesis. And that concept was an ancient Near Eastern concept of basically statues that represented the God and the ruler. So, you know, it was one and the same. So like Pharaoh was thought of as being God and also the human ruler. So these statues that would mark the border of the territory of the country, so that when someone would cross into the country and see one of these statues, they would know they were in that leader's, that ruler's territory, that God's territory, and that we are each meant to take up the space at the edges of God's territory and to image God to the world was a powerful shift for me because I think it allowed me to be the subject of my own life in a way that I never had been before. That God wanted me to stand at the edge of this space of God's territory the way that I am. And when people interact with me to somehow be also interacting in a way with God and to see God in this space because I inhabit it just, you know, as God's, as God's image. I don't know. It was powerful to me and it changed the way I thought about myself as a woman and even like taking up space or having something small, but also significant. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, that's so beautifully put. And it implies that you didn't have it before, that women in general, and I'm standing in solidarity with you. Why do we need that kind of aha moment, right? So kind of get behind that. What are those, what did your aha moment replace in terms of how you were viewing yourself as a woman or how others were viewing you as a woman learning theology? Yeah, that is a good question. I think I had always seen myself unconsciously, but it was powerful to name it, as an object in somebody else's story. So it was my job to facilitate other people's subjectivity, whether that was 
my children or my husbands or even when I was a teacher, my students who I, you know, longed to get to follow and pursue their dreams and succeed. And I was, I've been pretty adept at that. So it's in some ways it's a little scary because it's caused it. We have to know where we stand. And I think even what we want and getting into contact with our desire and also our gifts, I think for me and I imagine for other women can be a little intimidating if you have not ever, if you've always been others referential, you know, if you look in the mirror and see someone else and not yourself as being the thing that, you know, shines the brightest. I think that process of learning to um, know what I want and then to take that to God and ask what he wants from me and with me. Lately, I've been struck with the idea of Jesus' self-giving love. And there's so much, you know, that's in the kenosis, the self-giving of Jesus that we often, as women, I think, lean right into. <laughs> but it struck me that there's that it's self-giving and that we have to have a self to be able to freely give. Otherwise, there's not a, there's not a laying down because we don't even have anything that we are giving up. So to do the work of knowing ourselves and becoming a self and then being able to give that away in the direction of other people and, you know, whatever God has us doing, I think it is kind of a missing element sometimes in female formation. At least it has been for me in my spaces. Oh, absolutely. Are there, can you hone that down maybe to two or three? I can imagine some of our listeners are thinking, okay, but Karen, can you give me like one or two steps that I can take now in terms of getting to know myself so that I can give? before in modeling the Lord's self-giving? Yeah, I think two things I have done um, lately that have been really helpful is one is actually the Ignatian Prayer of Examine, which is just reviewing the last 24 hours and looking for what Ignatius calls consolations and desolations. So where did I sense God's life in me most fully? Where did I sense that I was most alive? over the last 24 hours? And where did I sense that I was least filled with life and love over the last 24 hours? And just watching patterns of like, how do I light up in God's presence? You know, God's light is always shining, but where is it reflecting in my life? And noticing that over time, I think, allows us to build a sense of the patterns of who we are that um, that are uniquely us. And then the other thing that's kind of silly, but has been powerful for me because I've realized I don't necessarily know what I want or trust myself (laughs) if I do, is in the morning to just like write down two or three things that I want. You know, they can be very small. And then checking, you know, the next morning, I'll just look and see like, did I move from that place of knowing kind of where I was and what I needed and wanted to do? Or was I, did I let myself get given away in ways that I was you know, probably not up for in the day. And those two little practices have been very helpful because I think it's very hard to go from not having a sense of self to having a fully baked one. You have to grow. So having small things is really important. Karen, there's a thread that I've been hearing throughout this whole conversation today that's been really personally striking for me. I really resonate with what you've shared of the transformation of becoming the other, being on the receiving end of hospitality. I've moved around and lived in different regions, especially over the last 10 years of my life. And it has been transformational in my own faith to 
experience something similar to be in a new culture without having built in family and friends needing to be the one on the receiving end. Even in our most recent move, I definitely resonated with a small house without a dining room table. And how do we, how do we extend this gesture of hospitality when I don't even feel like I have the right tools for it? So thank you for just your honesty and your vulnerability in sharing that part of your story. I wonder, just because I've experienced this, if maybe you resonate with this as well, I've learned a lot about God through that experience because I think I see God as a God of hospitality, offering a seat at the table for us in the family of God. But also in Jesus, we see the example of Jesus in some ways being the other, having to rely on the hospitality of others. And so this whole process has taught me a lot about who God is and God's heart for us. And I wonder what you've learned through that process from living in Japan or in your current neighborhood where you live in Georgia, which we described earlier in the episode as being this incredibly diverse neighborhood. You found yourself sort of on both sides of that relationship during the season. So maybe as you self-reflect on that, uh, are there misconceptions that you are now realizing that you had at the start of that journey? Has it taught you sure. anything yeah, about yourself good, or about God's character that question. you'd be willing to I do think that is so true that in true hospitality, we learn of God's hospitality. And it strikes me as well. Well, I actually was listening to some Alabaster Jar episodes, and I think it was Brittany Kim who talked about a few different ways that our culture tends to disconnect us from the opportunity to learn in diverse spaces. She talked about proximity. She talked about the pace that we live our lives at. And she talked about, um, trying to think what the third thing was. Anyhow, it struck me in listening to her and in thinking about our, oh, individualism was the third thing, that all of those things, while they are not, it's not wrong to have a fast pace. It's not wrong to be an individual. And, you know, it's certainly not wrong to live. You can't live close to everyone <laughs> or even be close to everyone. But as we become proximate, and as we slow down, we get to enter in to community in a different way. And I think just the posture of openness and presence is something that I've had to learn how to practice through hospitality and really as much being the recipient as the giver. But even when we host things here, there's just a sense of needing to be open-handed and needing to be present that's different than when I've been engaged in hospitality in my same demographic, because we all have the same expectations of how things are going to go. So I, I really feel like hospitality has been an invitation to that openness and presence that God offers to me in that community, that Trinitarian community that God offers as well to all of us. So I think that's what comes to mind. That's so good. As we close out today, you use the word community there, and it's such a good reminder that we live in the kingdom community of God. We all are citizens of that community. So what would be like a final piece of encouragement to our listeners of how we can live into what you've talked about today as members of that kingdom community? Yeah, I think about, um, I think it was Dallas Willard, maybe I'll be misquoting him, but I think he said the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. And it is God's heart that we 
love people. And that's the heart of community. So I do think for those of us addicted to outcomes and even addicted to things like our family life or whatever it is, that when we step into those places of relationship and love that even might be uncomfortable, that is a community space. It is the range of God's effective will for sure that we be in, a, in places where we're learning to love and be loved, especially across differences. That's where Jesus showed up and that's where God, that's where we can, I think, find God most easily. God is, you know, always present, but it has become real to me that, you know, connecting with the heart of God happens um, very easily when we cross those borders and boundaries. Karen, thank you so much. After 27 years of knowing you, this session has made me feel like I know you even better and has been able to cover things that in another environment I wouldn't have even known to ask you. So thank you for, again, giving me the opportunity to learn from you, both as a friend and a theologian and as a woman. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a special treat. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on the Alabaster Jar podcast. Check out the episode description for links to Karen's work at the Khalid Project and information about the upcoming Tove event on October 21st. We release brand new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe, share, and join us back here next Tuesday for another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast.